Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 42. Last time we brought our narrative through some tough times for the Truman administration, as the front line stabilised under the direction of General Matthew Ridgway. Planning his offensives in the spring of 1951, Ridgway's role in the improvement, first of the morale of the 8th Army, and then in the fortunes of the overall United Nations Army once he became Supreme Allied Commander in April, remain a key fact of the period. Ridgway's legacy is undeniable. Compared especially to MacArthur, Ridgway's political sensitivity must have seemed like a breath of fresh air. On the 11th of April, 1951, Matthew Ridgway would officially replace Douglas MacArthur as the Supreme Allied Commander of the UN Forces in Korea. 
This episode here is something a bit special. It will tell the story of how MacArthur finally lost his command on what he did afterwards, but I would also like to make you guys aware that this episode will draw heavily from something I am privileged to have complete access to. The audio of Douglas MacArthur's address to Congress on the 19th of April 1951, that is just over a week after he had been dismissed. To wrap up this episode and MacArthur's story, we'll be providing a running commentary on a good portion of this famous address in the later part of the episode, so I hope you guys will stick around for that. First though, we need to bring our story to April, and to see why the Truman administration believes that, in MacArthur's case, enough was enough. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the 12th of February 1951, where an angry Republican spoke to his peers at the Kings County Republican Committee of Brooklyn. The song of the week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Facebook. That's right, When Diplomacy Fails is on Facebook in two important forms. First of all, there's the Facebook group where you can join a wide range of history friends who are completely normal and who are as fascinated by history as you are, because if you weren't, you wouldn't be here listening to When Diplomacy Fails or other history podcasts. Make sure to join the Facebook group by simply clicking on the link below. I'll have to approve your joining, of course, because otherwise you could be a robot. But if you answer a simple question, then we can then proceed to furthering our relationship and helping to make history thrive. There's over 600 members in the group already, which I'm quite happy with, but of course I would love for it to get bigger. So why don't you add yourself? Why don't you add your historical opinions and your historical nerdiness to this group of history friends? The second thing you should know is that the Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, is out there. Facebook is by no means perfect in helping me spread the word of this podcast. In fact, in the last year or so, Facebook has pretty much dropped off the radar in terms of effectiveness, unless, of course, you want to pay a tidy sum every month for the privilege of having your stuff reach people. I don't really believe that there's much point in paying to advertise, since if people see an ad for When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, they won't really know what it is. So instead, I'm using the podcast to hopefully further debate and awareness more organically. And that's where you can come in. All you have to do is like the page, share, comment, etc. on the different posts, and then you'll be able to spread the word of this podcast. And my hope is that eventually, Facebook will have to listen to the fact that we have this army of history friends. In fact, we're nearing 3,000 likes on the page at this point, but the reach is still not all that great. So if you want to help out that, you can do that for absolutely free. If you don't like Facebook, remember we are, of course, on Twitter, at WDF Podcast. If you don't like any social media, then that's, of course, fine too. Why not rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or simply, very, very simply, tell somebody about this podcast. Tell them about what we're doing here at When Diplomacy Fails, that we cover wars throughout history with a diplomatic focus, that we're currently looking at the Korean War, and it's a very topical conflict indeed, and that in November we will be covering the Treaty of Versailles in a special anniversary project. There has never been a better time to be a history friend, guys, so make sure you spread the word so that other history friends, potential history friends, can join in on the party. Other than that, a huge thanks to all of you for listening, and you should of course know that the song of the week this week is I'll Say She Does by Al Johnson. It was released in 1919. Enjoy it, guys, and we will be back with episode 42 of the Korean War. I got a brand new sweetie, said 
Joseph Martin was the leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, and he had more than a few bones to pick with the Truman administration's handling of the Korean War, the situation on Taiwan, and the defence of Europe. Foreign policy was a critical talking point and an issue for debate between the two parties, as it remains to this day. Also, as modern political traditions dictate, the party in opposition always claims to be capable of doing a better job and accuses the incumbent party of bungling the opportunities presented to it in foreign policy. Martin's speech before his friends and colleagues was unremarkable in several respects. The 12th of February, after all, was a traditional date as Abraham Lincoln's birthday to castigate the Democrats and for the Republicans to pat themselves on the back. Yet Martin's speech was significant because the Republican communicated its contents to MacArthur, and he requested MacArthur's response to its contents. By so doing, Martin linked MacArthur to the views and opinions of the political opposition, and by doing so he provided further evidence to President Truman that the grizzled general's views were incompatible with those of his administration. Martin said on the 12th of February that, It is the great tragedy of our day that in a period of crisis we have an administration in Washington which is so bankrupt in leadership that its first measurement of every undertaking is whether it will help perpetuate those in power. Voters have become the yardstick of their policies. Because we had fuzzy-minded, pinko officials in our security setup, the Soviet Union was able to steal the secrets of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. Everyone knows that we must have an effective aid program for Europe. Everyone knows that we must not, if we can possibly prevent it, allow the resources and productive capacity of the free European nations to fall into communist control. I protest with every resource at my command the formulation of any overall strategy which virtually ignores the focal point of our trouble today, Asia. How many people recall that General MacArthur declared that our failure to help the Republic of China may be the single biggest blunder in the history of the United States. If we want to take pressure off our forces in Korea, and if we want to diminish the threat of a Soviet sweep across Europe, why, may I ask, do we not employ the 800,000 anti-communist Chinese troops on Taiwan? What could be sounder logic, both strategically and militarily, 
than to allow the anti-communist forces of the Generalissimo on Taiwan to participate in the war against the Chinese Reds. Why not let them open a second front in Asia? If it is right for American boys to fight Chinese Reds in Korea, what can be wrong with American help to the anti-communist Chinese fighting the Reds on their own soil? What are we in Korea for? To win or to lose? To escalate the situation in Korea into a fully-fledged war with the People's Republic of China would have been the antithesis of everything President Truman stood for. Everything he had done up to this point, he had done so with the goal of creating the conflict that his ends required. The budgetary increases were forthcoming, and it would be correct to define Truman's behaviour from December onwards as containing the war for the Korean Peninsula. American strategy had never been to invest great resources in an Asian land war. The main focal point, contrary to Joseph Martin's claims, was Western Europe. Far more was at stake in Europe, and far more damage would be done to the American position in the world if the likes of France, West Germany, Italy, etc. fell to the Soviets. This was why separate policy plans had existed in Korea in the event of either a Chinese or Soviet intervention in the war. At no point in his life did President Truman desire to see the war in Korea become a third world war, and while his opponents could criticise him for his policies in Asia, it is highly unlikely that Joseph Martin, had he been in power, would have engaged in the more provocative policies that he advocated. This is worth considering especially when we look at the already waning enthusiasm which the Korean War was evoking from the American people who just wanted the Korean War to end and their boys to come home by spring 1951, especially when things began to get more difficult and they weren't getting repeated reports home of great triumphs and victories. While MacArthur would later claim that he had never advocated anything so crazy as the commitment of soldiers to the Chinese mainland, what he failed to understand or perhaps to accept was that to follow with his provocative policies against Mao Zedong's regime would have created the very war he claimed not to want. This becomes especially apparent when we note how angered and hostile Mao became once the United States began to move its fleet between the Taiwan Strait. Once they began interfering in the Chinese Civil War, the United States became Mao Zedong's number two enemy, behind only Chiang Kai-shek. Mao's very decision to intervene in the Korean War was tangled up with his security concerns regarding Taiwan and the American intervention on behalf of Chiang. At that point, Truman had known how far to push in order to provoke the intervention of the People's Republic of China in the Korean War. He had made gestures of support for Chiang Kai-shek, but through General MacArthur, he ensured that the Republic of China was protected. But he never allowed Chiang to take advantage of American protection. He claimed that Taiwan's importance was an issue for the United Nations, but he cautioned that settling the Korean War should be done first. Everything Truman had done, in other words, he did it to facilitate the limited war in Korea, which he felt America's future security depended upon. Without the limited front provided by the Korean War, the necessary rearmament and military investment program could never have been legitimized or implemented. Everything else, including his presidential popularity, the longevity of his administration and the fortunes of the Democratic Party, took a back seat. This is important to emphasise, and I'm not trying to make Truman sound like a political martyr here, but it is important to emphasise when we consider the political facts of the era. Did Truman not care for the consequences when he appeared weak by not combating the People's Republic more openly in Asia? Did he not hear the critics who claimed that his administration didn't have the stomach to wage proper war? 
Of course, Truman heard all of these critics. Senator McCarthy, after all, had been beating his dead red horse for over two years by the time the United States got involved in Korea. Truman wasn't deaf to the objections of his critics, the media or the public. To Truman, though, he felt he had a job to do once NSC-68 became official American policy, and that job was to reinforce American security long into the future, well after he and his administration had faded from view. In light of the looming Cold War and Soviet belligerence and expansion in Europe, it was imperative that America build the arsenal necessary to protect and also expand its own influence in that critical sphere. Korea provided Truman with the rationale behind this arsenal building, and everything else was secondary. The president had taken charge from the late Roosevelt, and could legally pursue a third, or second, elected term. Yet it is unlikely that Truman expected, in spite of his public proclamations, to meet with such success in this regard. A politician just as much as a statesman, Truman understood that American politics went in cycles. Now that the Democratic Party had been in power for nearly 20 years, it was surely inevitable that the Republicans would fulfil the political tradition of all well-established democratic states and provide the new governance for the people of the United States with the Republican Party in power. This was how democracy and human beings worked, and we make great assumptions about Truman's political naivety if we claim that when providing some of the necessary conditions for this phase of the Korean War, Truman somehow did not anticipate the political costs. As we saw before, he had foreseen that he would be blamed for what had occurred in Korea. If we follow the conventional, historical account, it seems impossible to not blame Truman for what occurred. First, he failed to anticipate the northern attack on South Korea, then he allowed himself to be led astray by the deluded General MacArthur, that of course being the traditional narrative, not the one we're going with here. Truman was a lot of things, but he was neither deluded nor easily led. He surely expected that the fallout from the Korean War would cost him immense popularity and a third term. By the time these arguments played themselves out, though, Truman would have done his job. He would have ensured American security for generations to come. And even if his critics would never recognize it, his legacy is the president who propelled American arms to the forefront of the world, a position it holds to this day, by the way, would have been secured. In this tunnel vision frame of mind, did Truman determine that it was time to act in a sphere which would certainly deal another death blow to his political fortunes? That being the dismissal of his general in the Far East. It was easy to ignore MacArthur's repeated calls for the escalation of the war in Asia, largely because the recommendations sent by MacArthur had already been superseded by a directive sent on the 29th of December 1950. This directive had set out America's policy in Korea in the starkest terms. America, according to this directive, would not escalate the war in Korea by antagonizing the Chinese any further since to do so would create the grounds for an open Sino-American war, which went far beyond the limited war objectives of the Truman administration. MacArthur's ludicrous demands to employ nationalist Chinese soldiers to effectively bring the sworn enemy of Mao into the fight to blockade the Chinese mainland and annihilate the industrial capacity of the People's Republic through a devastating bombing campaign all of this flew in the face of the declared official policy of Washington, as well as of its allies in the United Nations. 
MacArthur liked to claim that the actions of the Joint Chiefs in Washington had crippled his authority and his ability to fight the war against the Chinese volunteers. He also denied any truth to the rumours of the so-called Big Bug Out, as Allied soldiers had thrown down their weapons and retreated in a panicked frenzy throughout December. On the 12th of January, the directive from the Joint Chiefs firmly asserted the goals of American foreign policy once more. In these goals, MacArthur perceived an important shift, which to us is now obvious. The Truman administration was no longer seeking to unify Korea under Syngman Rhee. Instead, it was seeking to kill as many communists as possible to leverage a peace deal out of the communist powers. Washington, in line with Truman's objective to pursue the war in a limited sense, had determined to settle for what MacArthur and his peers would regard, for all eternity, as second best. That being, an insult to American arms and a dishonourable abandonment of Rhee's regime. By leaving the North Korean regime intact, Washington would ensure that Seoul would forever live in fear of a communist invasion. MacArthur must have wondered what it had all been for if this was to be the arrangement which the Allied forces were now to seek as their victory. This was no victory. It was a defeat for Korean integrity and security and a symbolic triumph in the frustration of American military prestige. The subject of Truman's dismissal of General MacArthur has, in the words of the historian-slash-journalist Max Hastings, been the subject of millions of words of narrative and analysis. For sure, the historian H.W. Brands managed to squeeze an entire book out of the subject of the President and the General's strained relationship, and he was walking in the footsteps of many others. We could engage now in an analysis of each of these sources and what they say, but instead of doing that, I'm going to summarise for you guys the gist of why Truman dismissed MacArthur on the 11th of April, 1951. What it comes down to at its core were the fundamental differences between President and General over how to proceed in Korea and the impact which these differences in opinion were having on America's allies as well as the prospects for someday reaching an arranged peace. Truman could not have known how long the Korean War would last but he did wish to limit its potential for draining rather than aiding America's military capabilities. Once the approval for the budgetary increases he was looking for seemed forthcoming he was content then to end the war. Since MacArthur would never have allowed himself to be the face of this compromised peace at any stage, he would have to go. In addition, since MacArthur consistently put out a vision of American foreign policy, which was different to Washington's, for the sake of allied unity within the United Nations, MacArthur would have to go. A central facet in the differences in opinion between MacArthur and Truman, or between Tokyo and Washington's declarations on American foreign policy, was found in regards to China. As Joseph Martin demonstrated at the beginning of this episode, MacArthur had the majority of the Republicans' support, and the right in the political spectrum in the United States were as a whole more sympathetic to Chiang Kai-shek's plight. The loss of China was, to these individuals, still felt as a great moral defeat of American interests in Asia. As MacArthur provided regular reports of Truman's unwillingness to sanction the intensification of the war against the Chinese, to both that general and his Republican peers, these shortcomings merely confirmed Truman's own timidity in the face of the Chinese communist threats. Truman hadn't saved Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, and he refused to save him now. Truman had lost China in the Chinese Civil War, and he would lose it forever now. Understanding this mindset of the Republicans and of MacArthur 
is important when we examine the political backlash against the Truman administration following the decision to dismiss the general on the 11th of April. In the month before his dismissal, as General Ridgway's offensive gained new ground, MacArthur appeared to signal his distinct displeasure and unwillingness to approve the limited goals of Washington. While never going so far as to declare his intentions to go his own way, MacArthur was content to make plain his disagreement at every possible turn, to the point that virtually all communications between Washington and MacArthur's base in Tokyo contained some discussion, usually in negative terms, of the Korean situation. It became impossible to ignore not merely these differences in opinion, but the task which MacArthur and his staff seemed to have taken upon itself to propagate falsehoods and the equivalent of propaganda about the situation in Asia. One of the better rumours had it that the British socialists in the Labour Party had struck a secret deal with the Chinese Communist Party to give Mao Zedong Chiang Kai-shek's seat in the United Nations Security Council. Another had it that liberal leftist Europeans had pressured the Truman administration into backing down in China because they did not want war and they wanted the Americans to stay focused on Western Europe. These lies were easy for many Republicans to swallow because they encapsulated everything they wanted to know about the Truman administration. Ironically enough, this led to a situation where the Truman administration was closer in aims in Korea to its UN allies than to the majority of American opinion, which remained blissfully uninformed, by the way, and continued to believe in much of what MacArthur's PR machine told them. MacArthur, even without direct insubordination, was still doing damage to the Truman administration's capacity to wage the war in Korea. The new British Foreign Secretary, Herbert Morrison, succeeding from the ailing Ernest Bevan, noted in mid-March 1951, through a cable to the British ambassador in Washington, Oliver Franks, the following set of concerns. Our principal difficulty is General MacArthur. His policy is different from the policy of the United Nations, He seems to want a war with China. We do not. It is no exaggeration to say that by his public utterances, he has weakened public confidence in this country, and in Western Europe, in the quality of American political judgment and leadership. Here we seem to have a case of a commander publicly suggesting that his policy is not the stated policy of his government, not subject to the control of his government, and whom his government is, nonetheless, unwilling and unable to discipline. By late March, though, this unwillingness to discipline MacArthur was fading. All initial fears of MacArthur's dismissal, destabilising the Allied command in Asia or toppling Truman's administration, had long since vanished, and the final confirmation came with the act by Joseph Martin on the 5th of April, reading out a response MacArthur had sent him, wherein the general outlined his views on US foreign policy. By reading these words out, Joseph Martin made clear to all in the American political system just how different the opinions between the executive and the general were, while it also painted in the starkest terms yet to Washington's allies, how differently MacArthur saw the world to them. But what did MacArthur actually have to say about American foreign policy? Well, let's find out. He said, It seems strangely difficult for some to realise that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global conquest and that we have joined the issue thus raised on the battlefield, that here we fight Europe's war with arms while the diplomats there still fight it in words, that if we lose this war in Asia, the fall of Europe is inevitable, win it, and Europe most probably would avoid war and yet preserve freedom. As you, MacArthur refers to Joseph Martin here, have pointed out, 
We must win. There is no substitute for victory. By victory, of course, MacArthur meant the unification of Korea under Syngman Rhee's regime, no matter what the cost and lives lost, resources spent or political credit tarnished through the support of such a blatantly corrupt regime as Syngman Rhee's was, of which more will be said in the future. On the 6th of April 1951, Truman presided over a meeting of his closest advisers in the White House, where the subject of what to do about MacArthur was top of the agenda. By this point, Truman had already made up his mind about dismissing MacArthur, or so he says in his memoirs. By tabling this meeting, the president wanted to see what his peers thought about the move. The consensus was cautiously in favour of relieving MacArthur of his command, with George Marshall providing the most significant voice against this course of action. The next day, after having read the communications sent between Tokyo and Washington over the past two years, Marshall, remember the Secretary of Defence, declared his change of mind. He would support the dismissal of MacArthur after all. On the 8th of April, the Joint Chiefs met on Truman's recommendation to discuss the MacArthur situation, whereupon the decision to approve the sacking of MacArthur was passed. General Omar Bradley provided the greatest argument in favour of this measure, it was said, by noting that MacArthur had demonstrated time and again that he was not in sympathy with the decision to try and limit the conflict to Korea. It was necessary to have a commander more responsible to control from Washington. Truman already had the well-respected, immensely skilled and above all politically obedient Matthew Ridgway in mind to succeed the troublesome 70-year-old. On the 10th of April, the President and his advisers met one last time to discuss the plan. Truman would release the news at 10am Tokyo time on the 12th of April to MacArthur. There was some panic then as the story leaked out to the Chicago Tribune, forcing Truman to move forward the timetable for dismissal to 3pm on the 11th of April instead. But aside from this, the sensitive move went off largely without a hitch. At 1am on the 11th of April 1951, the US press corps were assembled in the White House, provided with copies of MacArthur's dismissal and Ridgway's promotion and the following statement from Truman, who said, With deep regret, I have concluded that General of the Army Douglas MacArthur is unable to give his wholehearted support to the policies of the US government and of the United Nations in matters pertaining to his official duties. In view of the specific responsibility imposed on me by the Constitution of the United States and of the added responsibility which has been entrusted to me by the United Nations, I have decided that I must make a change of command in the Far East. I have therefore relieved General MacArthur of his commands. Full and vigorous debates on matters of national policy is a vital element in the constitutional system of our free democracy. It is fundamental, however, that military commanders must be governed by the policies and directives issued to them in the manner provided by our laws and constitution. In times of crisis, this consideration is particularly compelling. Thanks to the leak and the resulting clumsiness of the administration in making the announcement, people were waiting eagerly outside the gates of General MacArthur's HQ in Tokyo by the time Omar Bradley's agent came to deliver the news in person. MacArthur did not conceal his hurt or indignation at the news, but he understood that a successful PR campaign could soon be his. By riding the wave of public sympathy after so many years of service, MacArthur may have lost his military command, but even higher political office was not necessarily out of reach. Returning to the United States on the 16th of April to a rapturous reception, MacArthur began a set of appearances before large crowds before 
appearing before Congress on the 19th of April in a scene which we will cover in a little while. In line with the plan that President Truman had carefully developed, where the failure to anticipate the Chinese intervention could be laid at MacArthur's door, many soldiers in the United Nations and United States Command blamed the departing general for what had befallen their positions, and they were keen to see the admired Matthew Ridgway take the reins. Some soldiers had never forgiven MacArthur for these failures, and the consensus among them seemed to record Truman's correctness in judgment, if a certain twinge of regret also followed it, that... MacArthur, the symbol, had been humbled by the slight figure of President Truman. If among the ranks the dismissal was mostly greeted positively, among Washington's allies the response was overwhelmingly positive. The British in particular breathed a sigh of relief at the news of his dismissal, hoping that as a result the consistent scares of an escalation of the war with China would now come to an end. For the record, Hostility towards MacArthur had been a British occupation in the months after the generals perceived failure to anticipate the Chinese intervention. What a menace the man is, confided Assistant Secretary of State Kenneth Younger on the 28th of January 1951. He, MacArthur, has not only proved militarily rash and at one stage at least thoroughly incompetent, he has also been totally disloyal both to the United Nations and even to the policy of his own government. Younger was not alone in expressing his distaste for MacArthur's way of doing things, and he was also far from the only British statesman to find himself pleased at the news of MacArthur's removal. And he was also far from the only British statesman to find himself pleased at the news of MacArthur's removal. US foreign policy towards the British did not change overnight with MacArthur's dismissal, though. If you remember back to our coverage of Anglo-American relations, you'd recall that Washington continued to pressure London for support of a limited bombing campaign of Manchurian air bases if the Chinese attacked with their air force first, but, by and large, the threat MacArthur represented did subside. Following MacArthur's dismissal, there was an inquiry by the Committee on Foreign Relations into the military situation in the Far East and the facts surrounding the relief of the General of the Army, Douglas MacArthur. This inquiry involved interviews and the discussion of top-secret intelligence during the eight-week investigation, and was characterised by the interrogation of 13 witnesses, including MacArthur, Secretary of Defence, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and the Chief of Naval Operations. So yes, a lot of chiefs were being talked to. The findings and conclusions reached here formed much of the bulk of the classified material, which was then released to the public 20 years later, with additional pieces following on later in the 1970s. The inquiry contained damning conclusions on the fighting capabilities of Chiang Kai-shek and of the utter impossibility of the nationalists under his leadership ever regaining a commanding role on mainland China. Had these revelations been made public at the time, public anger over the restricting of MacArthur and the limiting of the Korean War may well have been reduced, but MacArthur, as we have discerned, cared little for uninformed opinions. He had a policy to pursue, and he would not be distracted by such inconsequential considerations. The record must be kept secret, the President said, for the sake of national security. By the time such records were available, Truman knew he would be long dead, and his own position in the pantheon of American presidents secure. By 1978, when more truths about the Korean War known, Truman knew that the American leadership in the global arms race would not be able to be pulled back. Much like everything else he had helped bring into motion, 
Truman operated on the largely correct assumption by the time that by the time a given eventuality occurred, it would be too late to reverse its implications. Similarly, by the time the proposed increases to the American defense budget were approved, it wouldn't matter what any historian or contemporary had to say about his decision to dismiss MacArthur. For a myriad of reasons, the general had to go, and now he was gone. Gone he may have been, but in the months of April and May 1951, MacArthur was not forgotten. Standing before a collection of America's political figures, both friends and allies, on the 19th of April 1951, MacArthur gave his farewell speech to Congress. Of particular note is the effect which the combination of several political factors had on the speech's reception. Thanks to the rumours not yet dispelled, anger at America's allies from the political right was at an all-time high, and thus enthusiasm, almost euphoric phrase, for the general, was up there with it. For those that wish to know more about the details of the Truman-MacArthur controversy, I would recommend that they check out the readings given on our bibliography, in particularly the very readable book by H.W. Brands called The General vs. the President. For the moment, though, I feel it's time to leave these debates behind and focus on something exciting. The reason why most of you may or may not have stuck around to the end of this episode, we have some primary source audio material ready to give, ready to give to you guys to bring this story to life and add more context to what we're talking about here. It is to that meeting of Congress on the 19th of April 1951, where MacArthur was permitted to give an uninterrupted political, military and ideological address to those assembled, that we now go. This extract, this audio extract demonstrates, I feel, how the general actually felt about his president and the role he played in the Korean War as history now knows it. It was also the scene for some of MacArthur's most famous quotes and stinging rebukes, so let's have at it. A reminder, of course, that the link to the clip and the manuscript can be found in the description of this episode. I really hope you guys enjoy this unparalleled step into the era of history, and I am really excited that I finally get to bring this to you guys, because when I talked before about bringing audio clips into this series, this was the one that I was looking forward to doing the most. So let's do this. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, and distinguished members of the Congress, I stand on this rostrum with a sense of deep humility and great pride. Humility in the wake of those great American architects of our history who have stood here before me, pride in the reflection that this forum of legislative debate represents human liberty in the purest form yet devised. Here are centered the hopes and aspirations and faith of the entire human race. I do not stand here as advocate for any partisan cause, for the issues are fundamental and reach quite beyond the realm of partisan consideration. They must be resolved on the highest plane of national interest if our course is to prove sound and our future protected. I trust, therefore, that you will do me the justice 
of receiving that which I have to say as solely expressing the considered viewpoint of a fellow American. I address you with neither rancor nor bitterness in the fading twilight of life with one but with but one purpose in mind to serve my country. Douglas MacArthur opened his near 40-minute address with a monologue on the situation in Asia, which need not detain us too much. It wasn't until he started talking about Korea some 20 minutes in that things got really interesting. Let's see what he said. With this brief insight into the surrounding areas, I now turn to the Korean conflict. While I was not consulted prior to the President's decision to intervene in support of the Republic of Korea, that decision, from a military standpoint, proved a sound one. As I say, proved a sound one, as we hurled back the invader and decimated his forces. Our victory was complete, and our objectives within reach, when Red China intervened with numerically superior ground forces. This created a new war and an entirely new situation, a situation not contemplated when our forces were committed against the North Korean invaders, a situation which called for new decisions in the diplomatic sphere to permit the realistic adjustment of military strategy. Such decisions have not been forthcoming. While no man in his right mind would advocate sending our ground forces into continental China, and such was never given a thought, the new situation did urgently demand a drastic revision of strategic planning if our political aim was to defeat this new enemy as we had defeated the old. MacArthur then repeated the ideas and theories which he had recommended ad nauseum to Washington ever since the crisis emerged in late November 1950. By doing this, it was clear that MacArthur still failed to grasp that such actions on the part of the Truman administration would have resulted in an escalation of tensions between the Chinese and United States, and quite possibly the outbreak of a Sino-American war, which neither side really wanted. As long as he lived, MacArthur never made the connection between what his suggestions would have caused, a Sino-American war, and the plain fact that neither the Truman administration nor much of the American people wanted to fight such a war, which would of course have gravely endangered American security throughout the world. MacArthur then said, Apart from the military need as I saw it to neutralize the sanctuary protection given the enemy north of the Yalu, I felt that military necessity in the conduct of the war made necessary, first, the intensification of our economic blockade against China. Two, the imposition of a naval blockade against the China coast. Three, removal of restrictions on air reconnaissance of China's coastal areas and of Manchuria. Four, removal of restrictions on the forces of the Republic of China on Formosa with logistical support to contribute to their effective operations against the common enemy. For entertaining these views, all professionally designed to support our forces committed to Korea 
and bring hostilities to an end with the least possible delay and at its saving of countless American and allied lives, I have been severely criticized in lay circles, principally abroad, despite my understanding that from a military standpoint, the above views have been fully shared in past by practically every military leader concerned with the Korean campaign, including our own Joint Chiefs of Staff. I call for reinforcements, but was informed that reinforcements were not available. I made clear that if not permitted to destroy the enemy build-up bases north of the Yalu, if not permitted to utilize the friendly Chinese force of some 600,000 men on Formosa, if not permitted to blockade the China coast to prevent the Chinese Reds from getting sucker from without, and if there were to be no hope of major reinforcements, the position of the command from the military standpoint forbade victory. We could hold in Korea by constant maneuver and at an approximate area where our supply line advantages were in balance with the supply line disadvantages of the enemy. What we could hope at best for only an indecisive campaign with its terrible and constant attrition upon our forces if the enemy utilized his full military potential. I have constantly called for the new political decisions essential to a solution. Now MacArthur got to the controversial part of his speech, the point where he addressed his critics. Efforts have been made to distort my position. It has been said in effect that I was a warmonger. Nothing could be further from the truth. I know war, as few other men now living know it, and nothing to me, and nothing to me is more revolting. I have long advocated its complete abolition as its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. War is forced upon us. There is no other alternative than to apply every available means to bring it to a swift end. War's very object is victory, not prolonged indecision. In war, there is no substitute for victory. Having covered that, MacArthur then moved to the subject which he had always held strong views on, that being the idea that Truman's administration were engaged in an appeasement of the People's Republic of China by not pulling the trigger and engaging Mao Zedong in a full-blown war. Let's listen to his justification for the view. There are some who, for varying reasons, would appease Red China. They are blind to history's clear lesson. For history teaches with unmistakable emphasis that appeasement but begets new and bloodier war. It points to no single instance where this end has justified that means, where appeasement has led to more than a sham peace, like blackmail. It lays the basis for new and successively greater demands until, as in blackmail, violence becomes the only other alternative. 
Why, my soldiers asked of me, surrender military advantages to an enemy in the field. I could not answer. Some may say, to avoid spread of the conflict into an all-out war with China. Others, to avoid Soviet intervention. Neither explanation seems valid, for China is already engaging with the maximum power it can commit, and the Soviet will not necessarily mesh its actions with our moves. Like a cobra, any new enemy will more likely strike whenever it feels that the relativity and military or other potential is in its favor on a worldwide basis. MacArthur was now reaching the end of his speech, but like his favor towards the Japanese, he now moved to indicate his favor and likely genuine sympathy for the Korean people, who had after all shouldered the majority of the burden of suffering for this war between ideologies and great powers which had just broken out in their land. Douglas MacArthur said, The tragedy of Korea is further heightened by the fact that as military action is confined to its territorial limits, it condemns that nation, which it is our purpose to save, to suffer the dev devastating impact of full naval and air bombardment while the enemy's sanctuaries are fully protected from such attack and devastation. Of the nations of the world, Korea alone, up to now, is the sole one which has risked its all against communism, the magnificence of the courage and fortitude of the Korean people defies description. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. Their last words to me were, don't scuttle the Pacific. I have just left your fighting sons in Korea. They have met all tests there, and I can report to you without reservation. They are splendid in every way. It was my constant effort to preserve them and end this savage conflict honorably and with the least loss of time and a minimum sacrifice of life. Its growing bloodshed has caused me the deepest anguish and anxiety. Those gallant men will remain often in my thoughts and in my prayers always. In a conclusion, which he'd almost certainly rehearsed endlessly before performing it before Congress, MacArthur began into his final words with a note on the sheer duration of his military career, which began when he was just 18 years old. MacArthur said, I am closing my 52 years of military service. When I joined the army, even before the turn of the century, it was the fulfillment of all my boyish hopes and dreams. The world has turned over many times since I took the oath on the plane at West Point, and the hopes and dreams have long since vanished. But I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, 
which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. And like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. While MacArthur remained in the public eye and did indeed entertain the idea of throwing his hat in the presidential race for 1952, he would lose out in the end to his military peer, Dwight D. Eisenhower. The latter is a figure we'll meet in later episodes, but as far as MacArthur's final pronouncement goes, he did prove largely correct. After he left the Korean War scene, MacArthur's memory and overall imprint on the conflict did, for the most part, fade away, as General Ridgway sought to reclaim the initiative and reputation of the various armed forces taking part. MacArthur would write his memoirs a few years after retiring from public view, his star taking a nosedive in the months following Eisenhower's election. In the end, at the age of 84 in 1964, General Douglas MacArthur died in his Washington, D.C. residence. While his record in Korea remains to this day a subject of historical debate, his legacy, as Truman loudly proclaimed, was never in doubt. MacArthur, the old soldier, was allowed to fade away. So I hope you've enjoyed this unique look at the MacArthur-Truman controversy history, friends, and I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have hearing some primary source accounts from the figures who attended such weighted historical events nearly 70 years ago. Isn't it just brilliant that we're able to bring sources like this to bear in an audio format like podcasts? It really helps bring the material to life, and I'm so excited to hear what you thought of me using this material here. Even though it happened 70 years ago or so, using sources like these help remind us that these people we were talking about were people who had genuine feelings, fears, concerns, aims, and of course, critically, voices. They were real people, and as we've seen here, General MacArthur was a real person. So my theory, or conspiracy if some of you want to call it that, doesn't go as far as claiming that MacArthur didn't exist, because he clearly did exist. Anyway, before we get all weird about things, next time we'll be examining the Korean War as it enters its twilight phase, and as the peace overtures finally establish some ground for optimism that, perhaps, this blasted conflict might end soon. As the Allies would bitterly discover, though, the Communists were far from finished just yet. Alright guys, I hope you'll join me then, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach and this has been the Korean War episode 42. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.